It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We're not just home to some of these great podcasts that you've been listening to, but we also offer a wide range of degrees and short courses on all things public policy. Go check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And if you want to become a leader in the field of public policy, I'm pretty sure there'll be something that takes your fancy in that list. And I'm very pleased to welcome my co-host and podcast all-star, Professor Sharon Bessel, with me in the studio today. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Julia. It's good to be here. Great to have you, Sharon. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School and our editor for the Poverty in Focus section and, of course, also the annual lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. Regular listeners will know that each week we discuss what has grabbed our attention in the wide world of policy. So, Sharon, what did you hear about in the past week? Well, in the past week, or perhaps it's 10 days, I've been very distracted by the fact that Richmond won the AFL Grand Final. That was very <laughs> exciting as a long-term Richmond supporter. Um, I note that Bastian Schweinsteiger, you know, that, that great former Bayern Munich player. Bastian Schweinsteiger. See, you you say it so much better than I do. (laughs) I've got an advantage. (laughs) He's retired, you know, so, you know, one of of football's greats retiring. It's so sad in a way because I I do look back at the big players that that were big when I was a bit younger and now I'm feeling like all the great players are slowly you know, quitting and it's a different generation coming in. Good thing, but also a bit strange. It's it's a very good thing. But I guess with I'll stay with my Australian accent and say when Schweinsteiger was, um, was with Bayern Munich, you know, they were the glory days of, of that team and that's changing now. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a passing of an era. So that caught my attention. But I suspect when you asked about policy, it wasn't necessarily all codes of football that you were thinking of. I'm sure we could talk about <laughs> sports policies well, but I have to admit, I'm not exactly an expert on that field. I'm not an expert on the pronunciation of footballers' names. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. I, um, in the world of policy, though, I, I, I guess this is the recurring theme, isn't it? I, I look at some of the comments that Donald Trump has made over Twitter and elsewhere recently, and some of the decisions that have been taken, and particularly the decision to implement a very different policy um, in the Middle East, um, pulling troops out, the comments that um, Trump has made about, not just about Turkey um, and its strategic position, but about his own commercial and business interests in Turkey, um, and the way in which those personal and business interests are, are now appear to be driving US foreign policy. That's pretty concerning, isn't it? I, I think this is really deeply disturbing. I mean, these are trends that we see um, amongst populist leaders. They're trends that we see in contexts of very little accountability um, over time and in different places. But when we see a country with the um, the international presence of the United States really being driven by these deeply personal interests, I think that's a reason for us as for us all to be be deeply concerned. So, you know, again, it's hard to take your eyes off Trump and what he's doing. But I think in terms of, of broad global trends, this is a particularly worrying set of developments that we've seen in the last week or so. Do you see that this sort of development with other leaders around the globe as well? Well, I guess what we are seeing around the globe is the rise of populism um, and a reframing of debates. And of course, populism rises and falls over time. Um, But that um, that idea of the populist leader um, 
driving debates in ways that serve their own agendas in, in quite narrow ways, I think is something that we are seeing in a, in, in a number of contexts. But it is so exemplified in Trump and the United States remains an important global power. Absolutely. I mean, it's a bit early to put your bets in for the elections uh, in the US next year, but do you believe that Trump will be re-elected? This is one where I'd be very, very hesitant to put my money on anything, and and I think this is another one where the polls could get it wrong, a little like the Australian um, election this year. I think we do see an interesting phenomenon in United States politics, and that is the way in which the debates within the Democrats or within you know, the, the party that is looking to challenge the, the president, the way in which those primaries take place and the way in which the, the ultimate challenger is, is selected. And we see the Democrats through the debates, but through the media coverage and the comments of the, the candidates, really tearing each other apart and tearing each other down. Um, and I think, you know, those debates are really going to play into the way in which the ultimate presidential election plays out and is reported. Um, Trump need do nothing at the moment but quote what Democratic candidates are saying about one another. And so I think this, for the Democrats, is likely to be really damaging. Um, Trump, I think, you know, there, there are different polls indicating different things about his level of support. But in his heartland, you know, he's still maintaining support and he is delivering, or at least he's claiming to have delivered, on much of what he said he would. We've been in for a few surprises in the past year in Australia as well in terms of elections, of course. So this is definitely another case of watch this space. I think you'd be brave to call this one. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon, very much for sharing your, your views on that. What has grabbed my attention actually today on the news, I've been of course, following German news, being a German national myself, and the climate debates also playing out, of course, in, in Germany. And the um, national government has recently presented a climate package, and part of that would be to raise the taxes on flight tickets. And the interesting part is that, firstly, um, the numbers of flight passengers since the climate protests were really popular in August last year have actually gone up. And Ooh, fascinating, that, isn't it? it? That is true, exactly. And the price that they wanted to put on tickets would be an additional three to 17 euros. So quite an interesting step there. And of course, even more interesting, the fact that numbers have actually risen. What do you think about that, Sharon? Wow, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I must confess, I haven't been following the German news as closely as you have Um Accepting to look at the um, retirement of Bastian Schweinsteiger. <laughs> but I think this is really very interesting. And perhaps it speaks to the way in which we're seeing, seeing such schisms in very important issues. Um, and climate change, of course, is... Um, you know, according to our own former prime minister, the, the greatest moral issue of our time. Um, but it is a fundamentally important issue um, in... in in global politics today, but for the future of the world. But it is one on which division just continues. And the debates Despite are Despite so the facts, really. The science on this is very, very clear. The politics is very, very murky. And I, I wonder if part of this is, is part of those schisms playing out, of people responding um, to debates in, in particular ways of, of signalling that they don't want their own lives to change. I wonder if it's seasonal fluctu fluctuation. Um, Very hard to tell at this sort of stage. And at the same time, of course, um, with flight ticket prices at being at record lows everywhere, People who don't have as much money nowadays have more opportunity to travel. So is it just like a natural growth kind of thing? Very exactly. hard to tell. But I think some of these these issues are really important to follow and really really telling to follow. You know, there's a lot of, of work around, um, you know, I think of Ben Kirkfleet's work 20 years ago in Southeast Asia around everyday politics. And the way in which people engage in politics every day, the way in which they support particular agendas or resist particular agendas. And sometimes these things are explained by, by other factors, but sometimes they're about everyday politics and where people are positioning themselves. So I think these issues are really worth keeping an eye on and, and seeing how those trends play out. 
Yeah, we were very keen to see how these trends play out personally, but also we want to know what you think of it, listeners. As I said, the best way to get in touch with us and have a discussion with us on this topic is our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook. Now, before we get started with this week's pod, I'd like to ask you one question. Do you think Australia should be declaring a climate emergency? Our pop presenters Sharon Bessel here in the studio with me and Martin Pears will be tackling this very question with John Hewson, Imran Ahmad and Shane Rattenbury at this year's Great Green Debate. You can come and join us at Cambry T2 at the ANU on Thursday, 17 October. I'm personally very keen to hear what this stellar panel really has to say, particularly in light of the current climate strike protest. But what I personally also find equally exciting is the fact that that this will be basically our first ever live pod, and we would really love to see you there. If you want to join, please don't forget to register. You can find out more information at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash news events. Today on the podcast, we want to have a closer look at public perceptions of asylum seekers and refugees. For as long as I can remember, the rhetoric surrounding refugees and asylum seekers in Australia has been about security threats, border protection, rather than the principle of compassion and the protection of human rights. From labeling asylum seekers as illegals to the Medivac bill passed in March this year, there's been no shortage of hysteria about refugees. Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton cautioned that the Medivac bill could open the floodgates to asylum seekers. And meanwhile, the United Nations labeled Australia's immigration scheme as often harmful and urged MPs to stand up to Prime Minister Morrison and save the Medivac bill from being scrapped. So today we want to ask, how can we change the negative perceptions surrounding refugees? We have a very special guest, and I'm very excited for this person to come onto our podcast, I have to say, for to discuss this very interesting question, don't we, Sharon? I'm really looking forward to this conversation, Julia. We have Julian Burnside, AOQC, coming to talk to us today. And I think there are a few people in Australia who have greater knowledge and expertise on this issue or who have been as close to this issue for as long as Julian has. So I think this is going to be an incredibly insightful conversation. Um, As many of our listeners will know, Julian Burnside is an Australian barrister. Um, He's a human rights and a refugee advocate. He's won a range of prizes, including the Australian Peace Prize and Human Rights Law Award for the work that he's done over decades. And Julian has been here on campus um, giving a lecture at the ANU College of Law on domestic and international law reform. So this is someone who's really at the heart of these debates and has such knowledge to bring. Yes, and Julian is not only a fantastic candidate for our podcast, but he has also stood as political candidate for the Greens in this year's federal election. I'll be back after the discussion, but for now, I'll hand over to Sharon for the interview. Julian, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's very nice to be here. So currently... Around the world, there are 70.8 million forcibly displaced people, 25.9 million of these people are are refugees, over half of those are 18, so they are are under the age of 18. So these are the, the numbers that we hear again and again, and they're very large numbers. But I wanted to begin just by being clear about some of the terms that we use. So in what circumstances does someone qualify as a refugee? And how does that differ from an asylum seeker? Well, a refugee is a person um, who is out of their country of origin and unable or unwilling to return to it because of a well-founded fear of persecution on racial, religious or other grounds. Um, An asylum seeker is a person who says that they're a refugee but whose status as a refugee hasn't yet been decided. Um, And, you know, you talk about the numbers, but the fact is that the numbers are often compared with the number of refugees at the end of the Second World War when the world's population was about a third of what it is now. Um, Australia's population at the end of the Second World War was about 7.5 million people. 
Yet we weren't panicking then because of all the refugees who are looking for a place to live safely and who were typically looking to places like Australia and America because it was a long way away from the place that had treated them so badly. Um, also, I don't think people should get too worried about the number, which sort of call it 70-odd million people looking for somewhere to go. Um, the world has now got 7,000 million people in it. So one in a thousand people of the human species needs a safe place to be. I don't think that's too daunting. We'd all just have to pull our weight. So Julian, you, you talked about you know those comparisons with the, the Second World War um, and the fact that Australia was perhaps a more welcoming place then than it is now. And in this country, we often hear the language, particularly by our political leaders, of illegals of people somehow looking to to rot the system, to jump the queue. We hear this really derogatory language. Um, and Australia's policy of offshore processing is seen as one of border protection. So it's about defending ourselves, keeping others out. What explains this shift? And what do you think explains the the attitude and the language that's used around refugees and asylum seekers today, which paints them as threats, as a danger? I think the explanation is that our parliamentary leaders are dishonest. Um, the, the, the term illegal, actually, it's quite interesting to see, as far as I'm aware, it was first used um, at a crucial point. The Tampa litigation was um, John Howard's way of trying to re revive his electoral position. Um, it was the last last throw of the dice, you know what I mean? he was not looking like he'd be re-elected in the election that had to take place in November 2001. Um, the Tampa episode came along and uh, the judgment in the Tampa case, there was a trial that ran for about five or six days. Um, the judgment in the Tampa case of the trial judge was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September 2001. Eight hours later, the attack on America happened and all of a sudden, John Howard started calling boat people illegal because then most boat people were Muslims who were fleeing persecution and um, after 9-11 in America, you could do or say anything you wanted about Muslims and get away with it. And it's um, shocking. It's, it's uh, astonishing when you consider the history of it um, the Refugees Convention was um, put together, was accepted by the UN in 1951. Uh, Australia had helped put it together. But Australia's early involvement was in formulating the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, along with Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, uh, that had an interesting history because it was accepted with no dissent at all by the UN General Assembly on the 10th of December 1948, and it was an Australian who chaired the General Assembly, Doc Evatt. Australia had actually contributed significantly to the Universal Declaration, um, and Article 14 of the Universal Declaration says that every human being has the right to seek and enjoy asylum, and yet we are turning our backs on it, even though we helped formulate it. Breathtaking. I think one of the the most powerful parts of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and many other human rights treaties is the way in which they speak to the individual or speak of the individual, mm. and not just as an individual, but as a human being who is entitled to dignity. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. why have we lost some of those fundamental principles that Australia, as you say, was central in driving in 1948 and in the lead-up to the adoption of the, the Universal Declaration? I think the big turning point happened on uh, September 11, 2001. That's the other bookend. You know, the first bookend is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and after that, human rights became a thoroughly respectable way of thinking. After September 11, um, human rights have gradually fallen into uh, a position where not everyone respects human rights. And at one level, I can sort of understand our politicians, um, I mean, put aside their dishonesty and hypocrisy, but 
Um, the fact is that those of us who live in the West recognize the simple fact that if we tried to share our good fortune with everyone else in the world who was less well-off, our standard of living would fall. There's no doubt about it. But um, you have to also remember that we get a tiny number of people trying to come here and we need them because, as you pointed out before, about, I think it's 51% of the world's refugees are under 18 and Australia has reached a tipping point where there are more people older than 45 than people younger than 45 in Australia. We are going to find out very, very soon that we need younger people. And the fact is that refugees are volunteering to come. They're, they're people we actually need. They've helped build Australia and they, they could help keep Australia strong. So, Julian, we, we often see a, a very polarised debate around um, issues of human rights broadly in Australia, but particularly around issues relating to, to refugees. And it does often seem that there's a lack of willingness, particularly on the part of our political leaders, to really engage in open debate around Australia's responsibilities to human rights broadly, to refugees specifically. And I think it was striking during this year's election that while there appeared to be a clear choice between the Labor Party and the coalition, on the issue of the importance of strong borders, on issues around offshore processing, on regional resettlement, there wasn't very much difference. Um, and there was, it seemed, a real unwillingness to engage in the debate in a sophisticated way or to even raise the possibility that we, that, of the argument that you've put forward, that we may need refugees. Why do you think we see this lack of willingness from either major party to really address these issues in a, a, a rather more sophisticated way? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I suspect that it has something to do with the fact that um, both political parties have sort of painted themselves into a corner on the issue. And they're both, well, the Liberals have been dishonest by calling boat people illegal, which is false, um, treating them like criminals, which rather builds the idea in the public's mind, and calling, pushing them away as border protection. You know, I mean, if we were being protected from criminals, that would make sense. Although you might say it maybe goes a bit far, but it's false. And the fact is that the Liberals have been supported in their dishonesty by the Murdoch press, and um, that means that the public generally think these people are illegal, they're criminals, we need to push them away. Um, Labor, for their sins, I mean, Labor introduced the idea of mandatory detention, which is regrettable, and I happen to know a couple of people who were in the Labor government in 92 and who say that they never imagined that mandatory detention would work the way it has been working. But then in 2012-13, um, the then Labor government uh, reintroduced the use of Pacific Islands as places to dump boat people. And that has had terrible consequences. Uh, so I think, I think both major parties have um, almost nowhere to go without looking as dishonest as they are. Um, there's an interesting thing too. Uh, our, the 2013 election was a scandalous thing, I think. It was the only election I'm aware of in Australia's history where both major parties went to the polls trying to outdo each other in the promises of the cruelty with which they would treat boat people. You know, if it had been cruelty to animals, it wouldn't have worked. But cruelty to boat people, fine. Open season. Um, now, when Tony Abbott came in and appointed Scott Morrison as his immigration minister, um, Scott Morrison uh, issued a directive that the people who in the, in the Migration Act are called unauthorised maritime arrivals must thereafter be referred to by the department as illegal maritime arrivals. That's, that's a measure of um, Morrison's dishonesty, in my opinion. Um, anyway, um, it occurred to me that that gave rise or could give rise to a very easy uh, and important legal action, an application in the federal court seeking a declaration that the 
announcement was unenforceable on the footing that even the minister can't tell members of the department to mislead the public. Okay, I thought it was a fair case theory. Um, but then it also occurred to me that the only applicants withstanding would either be an officer of the department uh, who was bound by the directive or the union with coverage. Now, in his earlier life, Bill Shorten had been very useful to me in when he was in the union movement. He had managed to get unions doing things to help prevent asylum seekers being removed, for example. And he contacted me at home and said, look, can I come around on Sunday afternoon and have a chat about a few things? And I said, yeah. And I hijacked the first 15 minutes of our meeting, explained very carefully this theory, which is not complex, and asked him if he could bring me the CPSU as the would-be applicant. It is absolutely clear to me that he understood the point and he did nothing because, as I know from other people in the Labor Party, Bill Shorten ran the party on the numbers and unless a shift in treatment of asylum seekers had the numbers in the party, he was not going to do it. And so I guess what we're seeing here is politics playing out as a pure power game, Mm. a game of numbers where values and um, normative positions are really lost to the interests of power. Julian, do you see within the parliament any glimmers of, of hope? Are there either individuals that you see sort of pushing a different agenda um, or do you see on the on the crossbenchers within the minor parties any difference in the way these debates are playing out either in the parliament or in the preparedness of people to, for example, listen to the argument that you put to Bill Shorten? Um. There are some parliamentarians who I, whose views I agree with. There are some parliamentarians who are trying to achieve better results. Um, there have been one or two famous uh, liberal parliamentarians who bucked the trend and who have done things that are very much to their credit. I Obviously, I would say I think the Greens' approach to all of this is pretty good. Um, But for the rest, most members of the Liberal Party and most members of the Labor Party, in my opinion, are dishonest people who are not prepared to face up to what they're doing or going along with. So while we've seen the space for debate around these issues really close down at a political level in Australia, Australia has certainly been criticised by the UN and by a range of other global actors, uh, particularly for the use of Manus Island. It's been described as an affront to the protection of human rights, so criticism of, of what's happened on Nauru. Julian, what precisely are Australia's legal obligations under international law, given that we are signatories to a number of international human rights treaties? Unfortunately, in our legal system, the fact that we've signed international treaties does not mean that we have a legal obligation. It's not part of domestic law, so it's not enforceable in our courts. And there was a very interesting book, which I think was published in 2003 by Philippe Sands, called Lawless World. Philippe is a an international lawyer based in London um, and he wrote Lawless World really with Guantanamo Bay in mind and his the overarching point in the book is that in the international arena, uh, international conventions relating to trade are strictly enforced but international conventions relating to human rights are hardly enforced at all. Incidentally, whilst I've mentioned Philippe, um, he has recently published another book called East West Street, which I strongly recommend um, people at university now should read because the people who are at university now um, have grown up with no direct or indirect understanding of what the Holocaust was. Um, because Philippe is a an international lawyer, he gets asked to speak at universities from time to time, he was asked some few years ago to speak at the University of Lviv in the Ukraine, which used to be Lvov in Poland, and until the end of the Second World War was Lemberg in what had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
And so doing a bit of research about Lviv, he discovered that there's a street called East West Street, which had an interesting history because in East West Street, there's a house which had been occupied by Hirsch Lauterpacht, who devised the idea of crimes against humanity during the first half of the 20th century. There was another house in East West Street which had been occupied by Raphael Lemkin, who had devised the idea of genocide in the first half of the 20th century, and another house in East West Street which had been occupied. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. ...by Leon Buchholz, who was Philippe's paternal, maternal grandfather. Um... And the fourth character who occupies the first half of the book is Hans Frank, who was um, the governor of Poland, appointed governor of Poland in 1941, I think, by Hitler, and who was defendant number seven at the Nuremberg trials. And there's all sorts of fascinating, I mean, it's a beautifully written book. There's very all these intersecting stories in the first half, uh, extraordinary, including a story about Hans Frank, who apparently one day had a game of chess against a woman and he was appalled that she won. So he called for a rematch and had another game of chess with her later in the day and she won again. And he was much more distressed by the fact that this woman had beaten him twice playing chess than by the fact that between the two games he had signed the death warrant for 200,000 Jews in Poland. Speaks to the way in which social attitudes play out, doesn't it? Yeah, (laughs) but then the second half of the book is a retelling of the Nuremberg trials, sort of through the eyes of Hirsch Lauterpacht and, to a lesser extent, Raphael Lemkin. And I really think it's important for people living now in the West to have some understanding of what the Nuremberg trials were about, what evidence they uncovered, and what issues they reveal. And it's exactly because of the Holocaust and the Nuremberg trials that Australia was so strongly involved in the formulation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You've referred a couple of times to to the Holocaust and then to Australia's really prominent role in the rise of human rights that came immediately after. Mm. What can we learn today in a post-2001 world, from that history in the way that we think about, that we talk about, and that we respond, and the way we respond to refugees in Australia today? What are the lessons that we can and should draw from history? Well, that's probably the subject for a doctoral thesis, but (laughs) um, taking it without notice, I would say we should at least learn from that, that um, everyone on this planet is a human being. And what is done to this human being should be assessed as tolerable or not, depending on our assessment of whether it was, if it was done to us, how do we see it? Um, Second, if governments are given enough power, they behave appallingly. And the fact that Hitler was in a position to do what he did, uh, it's a warning. The Holocaust is a warning of what governments can do and they should never be allowed to do it. And if only we can understand for a moment why um, the governments misbehave and the fact that they can, uh, then I think it's a useful lesson. There's another lesson. I've been actually criticised for mentioning this, but a leading politician said some while ago, and I paraphrase, um, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of the government. All you have to do is persuade them that they're under threat and offer them protection from that threat. He said it works in all places at all times. And the person who first formulated that idea was Hermann Goering. Mm. And you can see the same logic uh, producing the Holocaust. I mean, the Holocaust was preceded by um, relentless attacks on the Jewish community uh, in an attempt to make the public generally in Germany think this is a group who can be dispensed with, you know, treat them badly, make them seem like a threat, and then get rid of them. 
You know, and, I think and that, we're seeing exactly the same right now with Muslims. You know, Islamophobia is horrible. I think that that first lesson that you draw out, draw out about um, is this the way you yourself would want to be treated is yeah. really powerful. I often think about that just a little bit differently and frame it as how would you want the person you love most in the world to be treated? Because I think sometimes it becomes even more powerful when we think about um, our husband, our wife, our brother, our sister, our child mm. being treated um, appallingly. Yeah. And I wonder, just leading on from that to the, the real conditions that refugees are facing, uh, particularly in Australia's offshore detention centres, how would you characterise that treatment? You know, how are people being treated on a day-to-day basis? Uh, they are being treated appallingly. And in fact, you may remember that there was a bloke called Sean Hands who worked for the immigration department for about five years, I think. And then last year, he jumped ship and spoke out very powerfully against um, offshore detention. And I just happened to have brought with me uh, the text of something he wrote. He said, on Nauru, I met a man who started to shake my faith in the system He was essentially the same as the man I had interviewed in my first year working with the department. His eyes were constantly unfocused. He was only ever partially present. I saw pictures of him in his life before Nauru. They showed a happy man, almost unrecognisable compared with the gaunt, haunted apparition now in front of me. Nothing I knew about his past could explain his transformation. He hadn't been tortured. He hadn't suffered sexual assault. He didn't claim to have suffered anything particularly traumatic in his home country. The conclusion was inescapable. We had done this to him. We had effectively destroyed a man that he wasn't just indistinguishable from a torture victim. He was indistinguishable from the most damaged torture victim I've ever encountered, and I've interviewed many. Now, that is a former member of the Department of Immigration talking about how the effect we've had on one man held on Nauru. And, of course, there is the... Um, historical fact that um, Omid Masumali, he and his family were assessed um, on Nauru as refugees. <clears throat> they were told that they would be living for an indefinite time in Nauru uh, and the locals in Nauru are very hostile to the refugees. Uh, he was so desperate at the idea that he would be forced to live in Nauru for an untold number of years that he went into a public area, doused himself in petrol and set himself alight, and he died. And um, we, you know, if, if you've got a person who's prepared to set themselves on fire in order to escape life sentence on Nauru, you understand how badly they've been treated. We actually, Australia introduced a provision in Section 42 of the Australian Border Force Act which made it a criminal offence for anyone working with the Department of Immigration um, to disclose anything that they came across in that capacity, anything they learnt in that capacity. So doctors, for example, working for the department indirectly through subcontractors, um, if, if a doctor becomes aware of a case of child sex abuse uh, in Australia, it's a criminal offence if they don't report it. If they come across it in the Department of, of uh, Immigration, they commit an offence punishable by two years jail if they disclose it to anyone. You know, why do we need a law like that? Julian, what, what you're describing is horrendous. I mean, this is such an affront to the values that I think many Australians, if not most Australians, would would actually say they hold dear, you know, around giving people a fair go, around respecting others, around respecting the dignity of other people. What are your thoughts on public sentiment around these issues? Do you think that the, the political rhetoric and the policies that have landed us in this situation align with public sentiment? Do you think that no. people really don't understand what's going on? I think people don't understand what, what is going on because they've been persuaded by dishonest politicians and the Murdoch press that these people are illegals and queue jumpers and pushing them away as border protection. I mean, have you ever heard any parliamentarian on the Liberal side contradict those falsehoods? No. No. It's the short answer. Mm. <laughs> so... 
in your experience of working on these issues, how do we start to shift that? Particularly, how do we start to shift public sentiment? We've seen a number of protests. We do see media reports that really have shone the spotlight on awful situations that individuals have experienced. We've seen media reports that have really shone the spotlight on the abuses that children have experienced. And yet, you know, we don't seem to to, to be seeing um, a groundswell of public sentiment against the poli- no. our political leaders. How do we shift that? Ah, uh, I wish I knew. If, if I knew the answer to that, I would have resolved all of this years ago. <laughs> we do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have no idea. Um, I think the press have a lot to answer for. The, I mean, you know, you've got to you've got to watch SBS or read the Guardian Australia to get the unvarnished truth. Uh, but the mainstream press simply keep repeating what the government says, and it's really sad. Uh, I, it, children are in a separate category, I suspect, because you know you hear the government speaking as if boat people are criminals and yet if you see a photograph of a kid kicking through the dust in Nauru, it's hard to think that she's a criminal. It's hard to think that we need to be protected from her. And so children have always been a weak point. Uh, but getting children out of detention is a good start but it's not enough. You know, there are other human beings there and they... look. Most Australians who have these attitudes have probably never even met a refugee. Maybe they need to meet some. Yeah. It's, it's the fact, othering, isn't it? Yeah. I, one, one thing I'd love to see is for every local council in every part of Australia holding regular, really, really simple meals with an equal number of local residents and refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I say simple, just really simple, just, sam- I don't care, sandwiches, whatever. Um, because once you've shared a meal with someone, it's difficult to think of them as other than they are. Mm. Now, the fact is that you know, Kate and I have had refugees living at home with us since late 2001, and my learning from that is that they're just like the rest of us. Some of them are terrific, most of them are just average, and some of them you don't care so much for. It's people, isn't it? It's people, yeah. <laughs> Julian, we've, we've talked about some some fairly confronting issues you have experienced in your career, some very confronting issues as you've um, shone the legal spotlight on the cruelty that so many refugees have faced. What motivates you to do the work that you do and what motivates you to keep going? Keeping going is not so difficult because, as I said earlier today, if, if you keep going you might succeed. If you give up, you won't succeed. That's pretty easy. (laughs) Um, uh, Why do I keep doing it? I keep doing it because I really would like to see Australia being the country that I grew up thinking it was. Um, I have great difficulty thinking that this country can behave so badly, that people can be so grossly misled by politicians that we will allow them to mistreat human beings who, if it was, as you say, you know, um, a wife or daughter or mother being treated like that, we'd be horrified. Um, and yet we don't seem to stop and think, what on earth makes a person risk their life to escape to a, a totally alien land and try and find safety somewhere else? You don't do that unless you're running away from something terrible. Now, the interesting thing is that um, we've actually got three streams of refugees coming to Australia. There's the offshore resettlement scheme, which is very, very good, where we go to refugee camps in other countries and we handpick refugees and bring them in, and that's great. And most countries don't have a system like that. Um, Most Australians are not aware of it. For obvious reasons, there's a quota of, I think, 13, just short of 14,000 a year. the second stream are people who come from countries which are not known for generating refugees, so they're able to get a visa to come to Australia you know, for sport or work or business or tourism or whatever, and they they get here that way. 
and they come in with a visa and as soon as they've passed passport control, they apply for protection. And the third group are people who come from countries that are notorious for generating refugees and who can't get an ordinary visa to come here because the government reckons that they'll apply for asylum if we let them in. And the only way they can get to safety is by coming here as boat people, you know, using people smugglers. The numbers show that, first of all, the offshore resettlement thing is not entirely selfless. In fact, I think it's John Menendew who was Secretary of the Department in Malcolm Fraser's government um, who went to a refugee camp in an African state and said to the leader of the camp, have you got any doctors or engineers? And the leader of the camp said to him sorrowfully, I'm afraid we've only got widows and orphans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The... The aeroplane people succeed in their asylum claims in something like 30 or 40% of cases. Boat people, until we started pushing them all away, were successful in more than 90% of cases. So the boat people are almost certainly refugees and we get terribly excited about them. The aeroplane people who are allowed to live in the community, no problem, we're blissfully unaware of them. They're probably not refugees. I I think it's always interesting to ask oneself what you would be prepared to do in order to try to protect your child, for example. Yeah, yeah. And that starts to shift things around if you're you're able to put yourself into someone else's shoes. Yeah. Julian, I think we'll have a lot of people listening to this podcast who would like to be able to do something about these issues. What advice – would you give to any of our listeners who want to make a, a difference, um, who, who, who want to engage in okay. making change? Well, what would you tell them um, they should do? I guess it depends in part on what their connections and skills are like. Um, but something everyone can do is write to parliamentarians. And the, it needs to be a short letter. Don't give them anywhere to hide. And it needs to be persistent. So, for example, classic letter would be, Dear X, I'm uh, a voter in your electorate. Do you think boat people are quote-unquote illegal? If yes, what crime do they commit? Yours faithfully. And if you get back, as you probably will, you'll either be ignored or you'll get back two or three pages reciting their policy. Write again. Thank you for your letter. It didn't answer my questions. Here they are again. One, two, yours faithfully. Now, There's a call to action that everyone can engage everyone can in, do I that. think. Everyone can do that. Um, for people who have a bit more time on their hands and skill and inclination, I think helping at uh, a community legal centre is a great way to do it. Helping at any local refugee support centre is a great idea. Trying to lean on local governments to have those dinners that I was talking about. Get Try to see that people can get to meet refugees, even if it's only their friends and family. You know, get a couple of refugees in and introduce them to your friends and family who don't agree with your views. Um, persuade everyone that these are human beings who've done nothing wrong and yet we treat them like criminals. Julian Burnside, it's been such a pleasure to to talk to you today. Thank you for your insights, for your knowledge. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Thank you so much, Julian and Sharon, for this absolutely fantastic and insightful discussion. Listeners, we're really keen to find out what you thought of it. So please reach out to us on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and join us there. And you can also contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's our handle there. Or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. 
And if you personally want to learn more about international migration or are keen to build a career in public policy, you might want to check out Crawford's Master of International Policy. You can find out all the information you need at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And in this part of the podcast, we want to have a look at your great questions and comments that you leave us each week. And I'd like to start with an article by Olga Krasniak, Can Science Diplomacy with Non-Liberal Countries Be Justified? In this very interesting piece, Olga looks at the considerations policymakers and academics need to make when engaging with non-liberal countries and why science diplomacy is crucial in facilitating robust international dialogue. This article has sparked quite a conversation with multiple people on Twitter, and one of them at Sean Riordan wrote, this matters as there are some really important issues to address, for example, whether international norms can be agreed between countries with different ideologies on the basis of shared preferred outcomes. Diplomats, of course, scientists, more outrage. What is your stance on this, Sharon? Diplomats or scientists? I, I think you you can always judge the quality of a piece by the kind of debate that it triggers. And this is a terrific piece by Olga. You know, it, it's really great food for thought. Um, I'm not sure that we can necessarily draw clear lines. And I think this is probably the, the point that Sean's making. You know, we say that diplomats should engage in particular ways, but, but scientists never – Whereas the lines are often very blurred in practice. It's a murky issue. And while we may see that some things are always technical, we, what we often miss is the fact that there are normative judgments underpinning almost everything we do. And I think science is an area that has often been seen as being highly technical and not underpinned by normative judgments. But of course, increasingly, we see it it is. We see it in climate change debates, but we see it in a whole range of issues. Um, and I think recognition that there are normative judgments to be made here is very important, but that doesn't mean withdrawing from debates and discussions. No, I, I think I would agree with you there, Sharon, and also the point where you have to think about certain research being important to save lives, for example, and to not have a conversation with each other about the progress on that research, that would be absolutely detrimental. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, that open discussion is always necessary. And as part of that discussion, there needs to be consideration about the ultimate use of research. Um, but remaining silent isn't the way to, to, to foster those kinds of discussions and debates. But really interesting issues at stake here. Thank you very much, Sean Riordan, for your comment. And let's move on to another comment on this time, our podcast, Democracy Sausage, The Next Generation with Mark Kenny, Amy Ramakis, Olivia Ireland, Noah Yim, Marvin Vestel and Gil Ricky. In this podcast, we took a bit of a look at where people actually stand particularly young people, on issues such as climate change, the economy, political leadership and the state of the world. And we have had a comment by our fan of the pod, Mark Zenka. Mark, I had to slightly shorten your comment. I'm very sorry about that. Please do check out his full comment in our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. So Mark wrote, a pretty depressing podcast. I'm hoping that the Nobel Prize Committee will award Greta Thunberg the Peace Prize later this week. I'm a boomer approaching the age of 60 and I feel all the anger and passion that Thunberg does about climate change and I am ashamed that so many of my generation have such an ignorant and condescending approach to her. Quite an interesting phenomenon that you can watch on TV and on the internet, how many people do get very angry at the sight of Greta Thunberg. The response to Greta Thunberg's activism has been quite extraordinary, I think. Um, and I'm interested, and I'm not going to make this a, a theoretical lecture, but I'm interested in ideas of intersectionality and the way in which different personal characteristics interact to um, create discrimination against certain groups. And I think with, with Greta Thunberg, we're seeing exactly that play out. We have a young person, we have a woman, 
so a young woman, both of those things coming together. We have someone who's continually being reported as having a disability. Um, and so we, we see all of those characteristics being used against her to marginalise her position. She's also incredibly articulate. She's incredibly In English passionate. as well. She's, her English is just outstanding. She's, she's incredible. Yeah. And I think she has a, a way of going directly to the heart of the issue that people find incredibly confronting. And when a young person of 16 says, you are taking my future, it's hard to, uh, for someone of my age to say, no, we're not. <laughs> because I think at some level we know she's right. So I think we've got multiple things going on. We're seeing different forms of discrimination coming together or different forms of biases is perhaps a better way of putting it. And we also see um, the, the power of her delivery making people feel very, very uncomfortable. And I think ultimately that's a good thing. You just hope that there's enough support around her um, to, to ensure that, that she's protected somewhat from the more vicious comments that are targeted at her. You can only hope so that she's got a good support system in place. And I suspect she has. I, I suspect so as well. Well, Mark, I'm very sorry to hear that you found the podcast depressing, but still a big thank you to you and, and everyone else who has commented. Please keep sending us your comments. You can reach us on Facebook where we are, Policy Forum Pod. On Twitter, we are Apps Policy Forum there or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. So we've discussed a lot of things right here, but is there anything else that our listeners should be keeping on their agendas for next week? Please that you ask that, Julia. There <laughs> is a, a day next week that we, sh we should all be paying attention to. It is International Day for the Eradication of Poverty um, on the 17th of October. And of course, this is part of Anti-Poverty Week um, where... Um, in Australia and then around the world, we see a focus on what we can do to, to eradicate poverty. So we will be um, having a focus on poverty on our uh, through our, our blogs on um, Policy Forum. But I would also really encourage listeners to watch out for what discussions are being had in the media, um, to engage through our Facebook page, but through Twitter on some of these debates around poverty. And this is a global issue, but we also see some really important policy debates playing out in Australia um, as we see pretty poor policy action around things like New Start, around homelessness in Australia. So now is a moment to really engage in these debates. Yes, listeners, as you heard from Sharon, please keep your eyes open for a lot of articles and podcasts on the topic of poverty in our Poverty in Focus section. And we'll be posting all of them and having a very lively discussion, hopefully, on our Facebook podcast page. And in this part of the podcast, we always like to say hi to our new group members. And I apologize for butchering any of your names. Uh, we would like to welcome Dinesh Joshi, Catherine Marchmont, Sarah James, Luca Lafleur, Phil Oban and Stacey Bruce. It's so great to have you on board. And many thanks to those members who have already shared their suggestions for a future episode. We are making note of all of these and they are incredibly inspirational for us. So please keep them coming in. In fact, we gave a mug to our pod member Matt Tibble for this, for his suggestion that prompted last week's episode on sustainable cities. So I've got a couple of suggestions to run past you this week, Sharon. Stacey wrote, she wants to hear more about nationalism and national identity and social movements. And Phil wrote that he would like to hear more about a plan for rural Australia that involves payment for the improvement of land alongside farming. What are your thoughts on that? They're both great topics, aren't they? And they are both incredibly important topics. Um, and perhaps that um, idea that Phil writes about a plan for rural Australia is also you know, extends to some of these issues globally as well as in Australia, although they're particularly pressing here. So I don't think I would disagree with either of those. You know, nationalism and national identity and social movements is such a, a dominant issue of our time. We were talking earlier on about the, the lead up to the US election next year. Um, and I think we're going to see lots of debate about nationalism and national identity then. So we might be able to tie a few things together there. 
Yes, and we've been talking very actively about social movements recently on our Democracy Sausage podcast. We've talked about the Fridays for Future. And in our most recent episode, we've actually talked to young people about their thoughts on climate change and the climate strike protests. So do check that out as well, Democracy Sausage. It's out every Monday. And if you like today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also like to thank Tom Fearon from the ANU College of Law and Holly Halford-Smith for helping us organize this discussion. Today's episode has been produced and written by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pierce. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, for me, Julia, cheerio. And for me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.